0: Episode 4 To dust, I guess. Forgotten and absorbed. Wake up! At the foot of the Manawatu Gorge on the North Island of New Zealand, a dirt track disappears into cavernous swathes of Nikau palms and Podocarp trees. Like a dry reptilian tongue, it coils out from dark green jaws, spreading as it fades into a thirsty fork the hot ground plateauing into one of many hundreds of acres of farmland. As the white sun dropped from cloudless skies, I was sat in the back of a pickup truck, speeding from inside the belly, headed out from the shade into the open air. I had a 20 gauge rifle across my lap, wearing a Sonic Youth t-shirt and typically kneeless jeans. My shoulder length sun rust hair was moshing freely. It was New Year's Eve, 1996. Sonically, I could make out tuis and Kahoos at the high end, the shifting of palms in the wind like a wire brush on a loose snare. The rattle and hum of the axle beneath provided a bassy, rumbling music bed. Somewhere in the mid-frequency was a symphony of insects, but their voices were soft, couldn't cut through the noise of the truck. I was imagining the ground thick with beetles and wetters, cicadas and spiders scurrying in a blanket so thick you couldn't stop the truck for fear of infestation. I smiled at the thought of breaking down, imagining my escape. In the back of the truck with me was my cousin Hamish. He was the son of mum's older sister, Aunt Kath. Unlike me, he'd escaped the Highlander genes and had much of the straight-laced Danish heritage from his dad, Uncle Paul's side. Rose skin, neat mousy hair, long dark lashes circling two robin's eggs. A crossbow lay across his juddering legs, held in place by a bandaged hand. I'd always known I'd had a cousin, but we'd never met until the move. Mum and I arrived a month or so ago after an empty year waiting for citizenship and 30 hours in transit via Denfessar and Cairns. I struggled to sleep on the plane, so I read Train Spotting and devoured decussed Hollywood to pass the time. An emotional Aunt Kath met us at the airport and drove us a final 20 minutes to her home in Norsville, a blink-and-you'll-miss-it town on the other side of Manawatu. I must have finally nodded off in the car as I don't remember the ride, pulling up the drive or even stepping out of the car and into the house. Bags at our feet in the hallway, I was introduced through crusty eyes to Hamish. He was a year older, smart and with a permanent cheeky grin. Aunt Kath was beginning to blubber again, but quick to assure me all was going to be well by giving both me and Hamish brand new skateboards. Hamish saw our forced friendship as an excuse to get away from sentiment. He asked me if I was 15 yet, in a freshly broken Kiwi accent. Nearly 16, I said. Oh, you want to drive then? Producing a set of keys from his pocket. Mum's green eyes cut a sharp glare at her nephew, who smirked nervously, realising he'd loosened the knot on a certain bag of cats. Aunt Kath broke the tension by telling us to take our skateboards to the warehouse, her accent a marble cake of opposing hemispheres. Hamish was already out the door. I called after him. What warehouse? Outside on the driveway we jumped into a black land cruiser. Inside it was a mess. A work vehicle for sure. Pink and yellow invoices and order sheets were folded and stuffed in every crevice. Two-a-penny company biros and empty shotgun shells scattered the dashboard. Oily marks on cream interior gave clues to varying culprits with guilty fingers. There was a petrol can in the footwell and the unvarnished stock of a crossbow on the back seat, a five-disc CD player, and automatic gears. Hamish let me in on the secret mum had been keeping from me. In New Zealand, you only had to be 15 to get your driving licence. I couldn't wait. My jet-lag hangover was ebbing away, the toll of the long-haul flight purging as I snapped into focus on my new reality, the wild heights of my vivid imagination paling in comparison to the movie set I'd just woken up in. Thousands of acres of hills and plateaus surrounded a small town that from Hamish's house you could gaze upon in its entirety. The next closest house was a quarter mile away, and then another, and a couple more until the terrain obstructed any sense of community, and long roads split into empty tracks leading to either town or wilderness. I turned to look at the house behind as Hamish twisted the keys, the engine purring somewhere down around an E-flat. The house was magnificent, designed and built by Uncle Paul, Like a proud castle, it sat on its own two or three acres of land, a track worn in around the edges and a wooded patch across the paddock with a wild stream slithering through. Hamish hit the gas and we sped off the drive down a grit track, my fatigue waking to another level as a Pearl Jam song I hadn't heard before came screaming out of the stereo. At the junction, Hamish yanked the handbrake. Skid marks released a billow of dust as he pulled down hard right, liberating the brake and finding give in the gas, perfect drift, whipping off towards town. I gripped the armrest, suppressing my delirium. He asked me if I wanted to build a ramp, but he already knew the answer. With the windows down, we cruised along Norseville's High Street. I think I saw something similar in one of the in-flight movies, something about the locals running strangers out of town in small-time America. Right and off the High Street, white wooden houses spread into blocks on roads three times as wide as I'd ever seen. They all had red corrugated roofs and decked verandas. built on waist-high stilts on lawns separated by pole and chicken wire fences. There was a Maori family hanging out on one of the porches, from great-greats to infants, barbecue, beers and singing. Some shot the breeze across the fence with neighbours and spun nieces and nephews in the garden, a leg and a wing, to see the king. They were beaming and high on life. Muscular, tattooed men, laughing with their eyes closed, walnut buzz cuts and dark tea skin. Women as beautiful as I'd ever seen coils of lush mahogany hair draping over athletic shoulders, lips full, eyes like chocolate. A teenager jumped from the veranda to the ground. Why are the houses on stilts? I asked. Earthquakes, said Hamish, turning down another studio lot. They'd be nothing but splinters without the stilts, he said. No foundations. How come yours isn't on stilts? I wondered. Hamish smirked. We can afford bricks. With my own eyes, I'd only ever seen one person with dark skin before. It was at an athletics meeting back in Cornwall, back when I was playing the role of teacher's pet and schools from all over the county met up to compete for tacky trophies. I was sat around the 300 metre mark with some other kids, refreshing orange wedges and grassy knees. A pistol went off to my left and indecipherable voices burst from crowds of children like thousand-inch cymbals. Eight kids flew past. One of them was black and he was slaughtering his opponents, yards ahead immediately and the gap growing. A kid to my right that I'd never bothered getting to know swivelled to face me. He was eating a yogurt with his fingers. Shall I tell you why black people are so fast? I was already wincing. Because in India where they come from they have to chase their food. I couldn't get angry. I didn't know where to start. A cow's lick sprouted from his shaved snooker ball bonts and a gold stud in his ear warned me not to antagonise. He was the kind of kid that would have poured salt on slugs and thrown darts at sparrows, his skull completely empty. He used two fingers to get every last glob from every last crease in his fusty peach melba. In my head I offered prayer to Dylan for my worldly education, for singing of Oxford Town where guns and clubs followed you down if your face was brown, of Emmett Till. Reuben Carter, and poor Hattie Carroll, slain by a cane twirled round a white, diamond-ring finger. Thank you, Bob, forever and ever. Amen. The warehouse that Aunt Kath had been talking about was the family-run steelworks. Hamish reversed into the courtyard, jumped out and started wisecracking with the workers like he was one of them. We helped ourselves from stacks of steel lasagna sheets, took rods and girders, dodged beeping vans and forklift trucks, We tied everything down to a trailer with a ratchet crank, hitched it to the land cruiser and were off again, back to the house and a massive workshop to get the welder and the angle grinder going. We talked smashing pumpkins and an hour later, with very little input from me, Hamish had finished building a quarter pipe from steel like it was nothing. It was pretty mind-blowing to watch. I was just trying to remain socially tuned in, creating a new version of myself just to keep up, a persona that was practical and allowed for lightning spontaneity. Hamish wheeled out a black hose and a gas canister, asked me if I'd ever used an airbrush. I felt a twinge of nervousness at the thought of painting anything. A memory from my infancy fluttered by, making handprints in duck egg blue across newly stripped walls with Dad, upgrading from cot to single bed and a new chapter in my childhood. I didn't want to think about that. (laughs) Hamish squeezed the trigger on the hose, spitting bullets of compressed air. (laughs) In silver on the ramp I sprayed an alien with bulging black eyes, shaking an airplane in its fist. The passengers' faces munch with horror. In loud pink letters I wrote, Take me to your dealer. We skated around the drive till dark. I'd done a little before and was streets ahead of Hamish technically. What he had was guts. His thing was careering down the drive towards the ramp with nothing in mind other than liftoff. Stacking it didn't seem to phase him at all. He'd just get up pick broken tarmac from his elbows and try again. As the sun disappeared, he reversed the Land Cruiser over and lit us up. The stereo kicked in. Pearl Jam again. I knew some of their early stuff, but Kurt Cobain had ripped into them in an interview once, said he'd always hated their music. I'd been a good disciple and followed his lead. This, though? I loved it. Fuck you, Kurt, I muttered under my breath as Hamish turned it up, another belter I'd never heard. What else you got? I asked. Ah, heaps. He reached under the seat and pulled out a carry case of CDs the size of a suitcase. Had it not been for my jet-lagged body finally insisting on shutdown, I'd have sworn I was already asleep, dead in fact, and risen in heaven. (sighs) are you done yet? Summer in New Zealand meant extended holidays over Christmas and New Year before school started again. I'd just had an English summer, with the timing of the move I was getting two in a row. Mum and I were to stay in the busy family home over the holidays while she looked for a house in town. My Kiwi family was super bright and the house was riddled with signs of achievement. Shelves that creaked with trophies and science books rose from floor to ceiling. An ancient violin hung on the wall beside countless framed certificates and pictures of Uncle Paul shaking hands with various suits. There was an upright piano in the living room, no television, but an all-mediums hi-fi and giant maple speakers. The workshop outside was full of blacksmith tools, bottles of chemicals, tins of paint and fertiliser. The keys for two quad bikes hung from an antler. Another set of keys were in a box above the door. They were for the gun rack. Two shotguns, a 20 gauge and a 303. Unbelievably, it was all at our disposal and Hamish was very keen to induct me. I'd been nervous about shooting possums at first but was told they were a pest and it was necessary. Plus, I didn't want to disappoint Hamish. I jumped on the coattails of what was the closest thing to a brother I'd ever get and was soon blasting beady eyes from the trees with lip-licking glee. In the evenings, being present was a staple value of the home. As well as me, Hamish, Aunt Kath, Uncle Paul and Mum, there was my other cousin, Frances, 18 and home from university. She was very hip and laid back, popular with the boys no doubt. She brought friends round to stay and they laughed and listened to Pink Floyd wore short shorts and bikinis under surf brand vests. I was welcome in their presence, but I was way too self-conscious. I sat on the outskirts mostly, imagining things I might say had I had the guts. Things you might say and do. I'd never known I was scared of heights until I climbed the cliff at Drake's Bay one day. Like a lemming, I followed Hamish up, but had to bail when I saw the drop. I climbed cautiously back down and skimmed stones red faced by the water's edge while he backflipped from the pinnacle, calling me a fag. Struggling to stay in character now, aren't you? Making pipe bombs was a far safer pastime. I could get on board with that. Clamp one end in a vise and fill it with gunpowder, then clamp the other and drill a small hole to poke a fuse in, taping it down to trap the oxygen. Simple. By the time you lit it and got 20 feet away, the glue melted and the fizz got in with splendid results. After we'd blown up some empty paint cans, we spread our destructive wings, used thicker pipe, stronger powder, blew up full cans of paint in the woods. The trees splattered in shocks of dripping wet magnolia, mint and citrus. More sophisticated concoctions followed, of course. Hamish never wanted to sit still. A few weeks after we'd met, I ran into the garage at the behest of a cry from him. He was stood over a bucket, stirring slowly around a smaller bowl floating in the middle on iced water. He was making a smoke bomb, had brown jars of saltpetre and bags of fertiliser spilling on the counter. He needed me to keep stirring the bucket while he ran to get ice and salt. He'd overcooked the potassium nitrate apparently and needed to keep the temperature down else it would blow up in his face. No big deal. I nervously asked him how cold we needed to keep it. He laughed and pointed vaguely at the thermometer hanging over the lip of the bucket. About there? And where can't it get to, I asked. He laughed again, moved his finger an inch or so. About there. We were going to light the bomb outside the school, one of the few places with streetlights. Our intention was to speed off to the end of Kings Road and watch the smoke engulf the streets from a distance. The tip of the fuse wouldn't catch at first, so Hamish moved in closer, holding the flame dangerously close to the bomb itself. Suddenly, the potion seized upon the heat hungry for the spark to inject life into its chemical slumber. It fizzed and flared up, scolding Hamish's hand. He yelped and ran to the car, thick blue smoke already pouring out in the amber hue of quiet suburbia and clearly out of our control. Laughter turned to panic as we leapt into the car and sped off, thick fog smothering the evening in triumphant billows of mischief. Curtains on the street pulled back, porches lit up and dogs howled. The peace most definitely disturbed. Hamish had burnt his hand pretty badly. He'd seared the skin on his palm clean off. He hadn't been able to keep it from Aunt Kath, though he tried for a few hours until the endorphins waned and the pain kicked in. We had no choice but to confess. We got grounded over Christmas for a week. Our release date was to be New Year's Eve. Best thing that could have happened to you. Mum couldn't bring herself to get angry with me. She knew I was passenger to most of the mischief and just asked that I don't do it again. She was looking for work and had found a house for us to move into in the new year. Things were going to be okay. Christmas was a short affair and didn't come with much fanfare. Three festive days was enough for my straight and serious uncle. To him, indulging in it was a waste of precious work hours. I swore you could hear cogs clanging in his brain, systematic and mundane in their rhythms. He had high expectations for Hamish to follow in his engineering footsteps and every moment counted. Hamish spent his incarcerated week finishing off the crossbow he'd started lathing in the garage, Uncle Paul watching closely over his shoulder. I could either watch him or find my own focus. Luckily, Aunt Kath had bought me an electric guitar for Christmas, which solved that dilemma. My acoustic guitar was still in transit from England, along with the quarantine dogs and the rest of our stuff. My boxes of songbooks were on their way too, but I didn't want to face them yet or write anything new. Instead, I set about learning everything in the Pearl Jam catalogue, note for note. In a week of confinement, I learnt ten and verses. Couldn't wait to get onto my favourite, Vitalogy. Fuck you, Kurt. Oh, welcome back. That was some deep hibernation. I need to gather myself again, get focused. And hey, go easy on Kurt. It wasn't his fault. I hoped my singing would be heard through the walls by Frances and her friends. I imagined them whispering about me fantasised about getting a knock on the door. Yeah? And what would you have done? New Year's Eve, the day of release, sat in the back of the pickup truck, speeding away from Manawatu. It was the first time me and Hamish had been out since the smoke bomb. Uncle Paul was driving, having taken us on a failed hunting jaunt. The unsuccessful mission had irked him, but it really pissed off Hamish, keen to christen the weapon he'd been slaving over. We were heading home now to prep for the party they were hosting reluctantly in my uncle's case. Staring at the cinematic landscape could make you think you were dreaming, but the bandage on Hamish's hand was a very real reminder of my situation. He was a time bomb. I felt it best if I disconnected. Turns out making bombs and killing vermin isn't as exciting as figuring out the drop D tuning in Evenflow or singing lines like Her legs spread out before me in your newly broken voice. We arrived up the drive far less rally driver than Hamish would have liked. Go help your mothers, said Uncle Paul, slamming the door of the truck and striding into the house. Hamish jumped out, heading in the opposite direction. Fuck that, he said, beckoning me to follow. Aren't we meant to be helping? He wasn't impressed. Are you coming or not, fag? I followed, checking over my shoulder as we wandered across the paddock towards the trees. I kept lookout while Hamish scanned the canopies. He spied a possum clinging to a branch only twenty feet up unusual for this time of night. Hamish cocked his crossbow, but his bandaged hand was slipping on the stock. He cursed, put down the weapon and unravelled the bandage. The burn had healed well, but it still looked pretty grim to me. Raw pink flesh outlined in dead skin, tobacco brown from the iodine. Hamish couldn't have cared less about his injury. He picked up the crossbow, spun the tiller straight up at the creature and pulled the trigger. The whipcord twanged like a cello, Aluminium sent climbing towards the lofts and spearing the animal in the shoulder, throwing it back. It fell through the branches like a marble in a game of kaplunk. Hamish was delighted. We ran over. It was knocked for six, but still breathing. Around its waist was a baby, clinging on for dear life, noticing the slack in its mother’s embrace. Oh, that’s why it didn’t run away." Hamish reached down and grabbed the end of the barbed arrow, tearing it from the possum’s furry shoulder dark crimson blood and the smell of fresh hide. He reloaded. What are you doing? I asked. Be crueler to leave it like that, surely. What about the baby? He aimed at the baby's head and pulled the trigger. The bolt cut through the back of its skull with a dead thump, out through the eye and into the mother's heart. Hamish ripped the arrow from the carcasses, twizzling it round his well hand. He turned and began walking back to the house while I mourned the dead in the growing shadows an insect orchestra clicking mid in the dusk. You've got to harden up, Hamish called back. But I didn't want to harden up. Now he was the kind of kid that would have thrown darts at sparrows, except Hamish's skull wasn't empty. It was dangerously full. Better off without that stick of dynamite in your pocket. The New Year party was people of the same ilk as my new family, well-mannered, serious, white adults. There were a few other kids that Hamish knew from town as well, plus Francis and some of her friends. I avoided Hamish, focused on being the DJ for a tough crowd. You were knelt at the altar, rifling through CD wallets when she floated over. Intrigued, and tapping a ringed middle finger on her drink, tucking blonde hair from turquoise eyes. Tanya was a peach. She wanted to know your next move as DJ, how you were going to win the room over. You were torn between satisfying or educating the masses. Grease lightning or 1979. She loved 1979. She loved your accent too. She did a naff impersonation, dropping the T's and switching the vowels. She laughed like sunshine and took a knee beside you, used your shoulder for support. The way she looked at you was just how you'd imagined it. She asked me how old I was and I died a little inside. My saving grace was the thought of telling her I was 15 now, and then in five minutes it would be my birthday, so I could tell her I was 16. You going to school here? she inquired. I was due to start next week. It would have been eight months since I last went. She laughed when I told her because she thought I was joking, then got comfy in anticipation of me explaining myself, but I didn't know where to start. Didn't want to talk about it, really. Just because travelling and just the way it worked out, time-wise, I mean, I scrabbled around. It's different over here, too. Your summer is our winter and, I don't know, just had to get away. Pretty big plot holes, but man, who knew ambiguity could be so romantic? The vague approach was working. She was still there, flirting, asking if you'd come here to study. Come here to live, I said. I live here now. No way, she said. That's choice. Choice? I raised an eyebrow. Now it was your turn to make fun of her accent. Cutlery tapped glass somewhere up around an F sharp. Uncle Paul wanted everyone's attention, pointed at me to turn the music down. He said some formal words strung in a logical order, went through the motions of thanking people for coming and guided their attention to the clock on the wall that was two minutes from a new year. People cheered, started moving around, forming a circle, linking hands. Mum was there with Aunt Kath. She looked young, hair like wild flames parted past two bright emeralds. That morning, out of nowhere, she'd opened up the piano in the living room, took a deep breath and played a piece of music I'd never heard before. Her farm girl fingers transformed, sweet and delicate on the ivories. I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know she played the piano. Looking across the room on New Year's Eve, I could sense the relief in her, see a real smile as she mingled through the party like a courtier's model. Tanya placed her drink by the stereo, stood and grabbed my hands to stand with her, said we had to sing now. Choice, I said. Old Lang Syne bellowed out, who knows what key. Hamish was on the other side of the circle, too wired inside to give a shit about complicated little me. He'd be fine without my friendship. I was glad to be moving out. When the cheering erupted at the end of the song, Mum came straight over and gathered me up. It took a second for the surprise to wane and for me to hug her back. She was never a hugger, but still it felt so familiar. She wished me Happy New Year and Happy Birthday before being whisked away by the merriment. Tanya tugged your hand, spun you back around pressed her warm lips fleetingly against a blushing cheek, catching the corner of your smile. Happy New Year, she said, then looked you dead in the eyes. So, when are you sixteen?